Hello, Warbirders. This is a special bonus episode for all for Remembrance Day, or Armistice Day, or Veterans Day, or whatever you call it where you are. I'm sorry if it's already passed for you, but it's just about 11 a.m. where I am in the world, and so that's why I'm publishing it right now. It's due to a social media post of a very good friend of mine, Dennis Letourneau, where he tells his very unlikely story of how he met and became friends with a very, very unique veteran. I will now read the post in its entirety in Dennis's words, except I'll only be using the first name of the F4F Wildcat pilot for reasons that you will come to understand. Local villagers had cut a path for us through the jungle vines with their machetes. My father and I now stood on the edge of a crocodile-infested swamp, surrounded by the scattered wreckage of a World War II fighter plane. It had crashed and exploded into a million pieces. Watching the crabs crawl around the wreckage on this remote island in the South Pacific, I was certain that the pilot was dead. Why was I so sure of the pilot's fate? The condition of the radial engine and propeller in the swamp. They showed that the plane had crashed in a shallow descent, not a steep dive. That only happened with these planes if someone was still at the controls. Or possibly the plane had been flying very low when the pilot had been killed. Indeed, my father had read an account of a fighter plane that had been flying low near this very point in 1943. The pilot had been killed in an unfortunate friendly fire incident. The plane plowed into the palm trees along the shore of the island, the wreckage ending up just inland from the beach. This wreckage scattered around us was just inland from the beach. It had to be the same plane. Fast forward six years to 2005. I'm sitting in the lobby of a small hotel in Texas, en route to an engineering assignment in Mexico. A car pulls up to the front, and the 84-year-old driver enters the lobby with the sprightly step of someone 40 years younger. He strides up to me, with hand out extended. Dennis? I'm Jim. The pilot of that plane has come to chauffeur me back to his home to meet his wife and some of his extended family. How was this possible? Over the decades, the plane wreckage had been souvenired by visiting yachties and loggers. Even the Solomon Island natives had dragged larger pieces to a nearby village to use in constructing their thatched huts. Most of the exposed metal had deteriorated to a moldy green appearance. For reasons that I will never know, I was drawn to a flat section of metal pinned under a fallen tree trunk. I bent part of it up out of the muck and scooped swamp water over the surface. As the mud washed away, it revealed a stenciled black number just as if it had been painted yesterday. It was the bureau number, a number that is unique to each military plane. This was the only piece of wreckage that displayed that number. The odds against me choosing that piece and the paint not being deteriorated beyond recognition were staggering. When I got home, I contacted the squadron biographer to confirm that we had found the plane that my father had read about. 
to our surprise, he informed me that the bureau number did not match the type of plane that had been involved in the incident. We had found an unidentified plane with an unknown pilot. Was he still MIA? In 1999, there could still be a widow, a sibling, or grown children who would appreciate having closure after almost six decades. The U.S. Navy, who holds the records of all Marine Corps planes, were not aware of this wreck and did not have the resources to determine the fate of the pilot. Armed with the little information the Navy could provide, I made two trips to the National Archives in Washington spoke with every surviving pilot who flew fighters from Guadalcanal during that period, and finally, after two years, we identified the man who had been at the controls. I spent a pleasant evening with Jim's family gathered around the TV watching the video footage and story of how his plane came to be there. They see pictures of a landing gear cockpit lever lying on the jungle floor still in the locked position that Jim had placed it in on January 31st, 1943, when he took off on his mission. Jim takes it all in from the couch at the back of the room, watching quietly. My father and I have pieced together the story over the years with combat reports and pilot interviews from survivors of the mission. His family learns that as the Japanese fighters dove on the bombers that Jim was protecting, he turned his fighter to face them head-on. He would be awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for his decision. As both sides closed at 800 plus miles per hour, cannon shells ripped into his engine and he lost power. Gliding the smoking plane towards the nearest island, he bailed out at barely 8 to 900 feet. His parachute opened just as his body hit the jungle canopy, saving his life. The bombers all returned safely. Jim has said very little to his family over the decades about his wartime experiences, choosing not to talk about them. He has been shot down twice by Japanese fighter planes, bailing out both times over the jungle and rescued by friendly natives and Australian coast watchers. He has looked down from his fighter to see a Japanese suicide pilot plunge his bomb-laden plane into a U.S. naval ship in desperation, sinking the ship so quickly that much of the crew were lost. As a test pilot, during the early years of jet aviation, his fighter jet disintegrated around him, spitting him out of the wreckage into the atmosphere. He descended in his parachute, temporarily blinded by the violent forces of his mid-air expulsion and praying that he would survive the landing. Jim has led a charmed life. Even his fellow pilots conceded that he had nine lives. He's been a good friend for 22 years now. Our conversations last for hours, and we are both reluctant to end the calls because we enjoy them so much. Very little of them have to do with his wartime experiences, which, if you count the Korean War, only make up about five of his 102 years on the planet. We talk about worldly events, both historical and contemporary, travel, politics. I delight in asking him questions like, Who was the greatest president during your lifetime? knowing that the guy I am talking to first voted for Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1944. The man began his military career flying open cockpit biplanes and finished it on jets that could exceed twice the speed of sound. He is an intelligent man, sharp-witted and logical. He holds no grudges against former foes. 
I brought him a short bio of the ace Japanese pilot who had shot him down the first time. He read it quietly and then handed the page back to me. With a nod of approval, he summarized the aviation career of the man who had riddled his plane with bullets. Very respectable. He is proud to have served his country, but like most professional soldiers, he has a distaste for war, having experienced it firsthand. He once offered that, opening quotes, If the leaders of our nations knew that their own child would be in the front lines of any military action that they ordered, it would be a much more peaceful world. Close quotes. Jim had a reputation as a no-nonsense officer, retiring as a lieutenant colonel about the time I was born, and pursuing a second business career in civil aviation which took him around the world. He doesn't pull his punches. If he thinks I've made a poor decision, he lets me know it. But he also commends me on choices that he agrees with. He has followed my life from the day I was married through the births and life events of both of our daughters. My first daughter delighted in a Christmas plush toy that arrived in the mail from Jim when she was a little girl. When my second daughter was struggling as a baby with sleep issues, he researched online and sent me a device that has given good ratings from users in helping babies deal with this. I hope one day that both daughters will meet him in person. He is now the last surviving fighter pilot from the World War II struggle for Guadalcanal in 1942-1943 which was front-page news at the Times. The second-to-last survivor received a full write-up in the New York Times when he passed away recently. Jim shuns the limelight, requesting that I respect his privacy and not give his contact info out to aviation, history magazines that would love to interview him or to history buffs wanting an autograph. I will try to call him on Remembrance Day, but the time zone difference between... Here and Europe, where he now resides, can be challenging. I will also wish him a happy 103rd birthday, which is coming soon. He has maintained healthy habits and is blessed with strong genetics. I hope to have many more conversations with him in the years to come. Please join me today in thinking of Jim and all the others, especially the ones who did not return. They shall not grow old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun, and in the morning, we shall remember them. Until next time.